Hi ho everybody, my name is Patrick McKenzie, better known as Patty Eleven on the internet, and this is the what is it, the twelfth episode of the Calcium's podcast. Things are gonna be changing a little bit. Keith Perhack and I have been co-hosting this podcast for the last couple of years, but we've moved in different directions in our personal and professional lives. Both of us have young daughters and uh, we're now living in different countries, so it's difficult for us to make the time to do this on a regular basis, as you might notice, because we've only done 12 episodes in something like four years now. So we're going to be podcasting independently. We'll probably still be guests on each other's programs in the future. This is now, I guess, just the the me podcast for the moment, and I'll have a variety of guests on. Um, Today, I've brought Josh Duty. Josh is a buddy of mine. Uh, We kind of came up in the microconf community together. Uh, We play poker occasionally in Vegas. Josh is actually good at it. I'm not. And um, Josh has written a book called Fearless Salary Negotiation. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, salary negotiation, but both before getting hired and after getting hired, specific mostly to uh, software people, because if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a software person, but um, widely applicable to folks in all walks of life. So Josh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Patrick. It's great to be here. Can't wait to chat. All righty. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today, Josh, about this. So one of the things that I hear a lot from people when we're discussing the question of um, both their job search and specifically how the job search, the early stages of it, relate to their final salary offer is that somewhere early in the process, they get asked a very terrifying question. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I call it the dreaded salary question. And it's it's something that when when you hear it, it'll immediately sound very familiar. But the question is something like, where are you right now in terms of salary? And what are you hoping for if you make this change? And so I think that that particular question catches a lot of people off guard and makes them very nervous. That they don't know how to respond to it. And also, I think they feel like it's sort of a gatekeeper question. You know, they're thinking, well, I'm interviewing right now and I want to keep interviewing and I want to do well in the interview. So I should just tell them the answer to this question so we can move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, you and I both agree that's a pretty big mistake. Right. The reason this question is dangerous, for those of you who haven't experienced it before or aren't familiar with uh, this line of uh, uh, conversation, is that if you actually give a number in response to this question, that's going to immediately cap your negotiator range. So if you say, for example, oh, my current salary is 90, then they know that anything above 90 is an improvement to you and it would be difficult for you to say no. So even if they would have been willing to pay, let's say, 110 to the right candidate for this position, they're probably going to offer you 95 and then walk it up to like 98, 100, and then you lose out on $10,000 right off the bat, plus the benefits that are tied to salary, like say your 401k matching, plus the compounded growth of that salary over your next, say, three years with the company, plus the anchor to your your next salary, and every other salary for the rest of your career. So this question doesn't sound like, hey, I'm trying to cheese you out of $100,000, but they're trying to cheese you out of $100,000 when they ask this. And they know this. Like, every hiring officer knows this. This is covered in books, literally. You can buy them on Amazon. But they're going to ask it anyhow with a smile on your face just to see. And a lot of people, even a lot of very smart people, smart engineers, folks who do hiring for a living even, will just straight up answer this question and then facepalm, but then it's too late. So how do we get out of answering this question? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you did a great job, by the way, of summarizing why you don't want to disclose it, because you're forced to more or less kind of throw a number out and guess that you're in their range, and you're probably not. So how do you answer it? I think, first of all, I am not a proponent of, of lying. 
on this question. I think some people want to know, you know, should I just name a really high salary or, or something like that? And I think that's not the way to go. The best way is to be honest. So I mentioned kind of when I summarized the question that there are really two components, your current salary and then your desired salary. And I think the best way to answer the current salary part is to say something like that you're not comfortable sharing that information and you prefer to focus on the value that you can add uh, to the company and not what you're paid at your current job. And so I think that's a very honest answer. I think it helps you demonstrate that you want to add value to the company that you're talking to. And that's a good sign and it's a good signal to send to them. Um, In terms of the desired salary part of it, I prefer to focus on, again, the value that you can add. My kind of pat answer to this that I like to suggest is I want this move to be a big step forward for me in terms of both responsibility and compensation. And I think you're signaling a lot of good things there. Mm -hmm. I want to do more than I was doing before. I want to get paid more than I was doing before. And I want this to be a big step forward while not giving, you know, that, that juicy nugget of information, which is your desired salary. Yeah. I like both of these tasks for answers, both because they avoid the tactical trap of giving a, a number in capping your negotiating range, but they also advance you in the negotiation in a way that might not be totally obvious. In both interviews and in negotiations, everything that you say is bits of evidence that the company is going to use uh, for the decision to give you an offer and to craft that offer to you. And so you want these uh, bits of evidence that you're giving to someone to redound in your favor across all sort of axes. So obviously, you know, just like when you're answering interview questions in a technical interview, you want to say, yes, I know my stuff cold, um, the stuff that I don't know I can learn easily, yada, yada. And when you're answering these softer sort of questions, you want to come across like a competent, confident professional that will be easy to work with. And so often the people that you are going to be having this conversation with are they're like either business people or have this self-conception of themselves as business people, as opposed to say techies. And so the ability to look someone in the eye and negotiate confidently is something that they associate with high performers, with people that they want to be working with. It's probably something they see in their uh, self-image. So if you perform wishy-washy in negotiation, they count that as a strike against you. If you whine about like, oh man, I don't know, then they might count that as against you. If you can say, look... I'm not comfortable with, with giving that information or, well, let's circle back to that later or something which demonstrates that you're in kind of control of this uh, part of the interview, even when you're not, they will read that as better than you might expect. One of my favorite ways to, uh, to get around the what's your current salary question is uh, I've been entrusted with a variety of information by my current firm. I intend to keep their confidences on that sort of thing. They consider their salary compensation private. And I think you can appreciate this because after I start working with you, I'm also going to be entrusted with confidences of your firm, and I intend to keep those confidences in the exact same way. And that's a, it is almost impossible for that statement to actually be a lie. I'm with Josh, always, you know, give true answers to questions, but give like uh, tactically optimal true answers. So um, it's highly likely that your current firm considers uh, compensation to be a very, very private thing. So just say that and have a you know quick professional refusal. And then you've got to stick to the refusal when they poke you on it, and they're going to poke you on it. So Josh, what do you say when they say, yeah, but uh, I need a number to go forward? If they keep pressing you, I, I think, by the way, everything you just said is fantastic. If they keep pressing you, I think that you can continue to sort of stonewall. One answer that I like to give, especially on the desired salary side, is something like, it sounds like you're trying to qualify me for a range. And if that's the case, then I'm happy to let you know if your range is in the ballpark. 
So you're still not committing to the range, but you're basically giving them an out if they are trying to qualify you for a range. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can say, basically, why don't you tell me the range? So you're you're trying to gather information while withholding information. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of the bigger picture here, right? You alluded to this. You only have so many pieces of information at your disposal when you begin a negotiation with a new company. Really, maybe two or three. And one of them is current salary. One of them is desired salary. And maybe another one might be, you know, how desperate you are to take the job. And so, on the other hand, they have sort of a, a, an infinite almost amount of information relative to what you have, including what they're willing to pay the position, which you generally don't have a clue about. So I think that, you know, if, if they continue to press, it may be effective to say, well, if you're trying to qualify me for a range, why don't you tell me the range and I'll tell you if I'm in the ballpark. So you're still not committing, but you are saying, I'll entertain your range and I'll let you know, you know, if you're way out of bounds, uh, which could be good information for you as well. Mm-hmm. And if they refuse to answer with the range question, that's uh, something that redounds in favor as well, although you don't get a bit of useful information because it gives you a, a socially acceptable out to say, okay, you know, we'll both keep our cards close to our vest, and that's fine. And that's probably not the first thing I would say about that. Uh, I might say, look, um, you know, I think we're, uh, we're both in this industry. We probably have a range of numbers that would work for us depending on the specifics of the offer. But I think the most important thing at this stage is to make sure we're a great fit for each other because clearly your company only hires people who are capable of performing at the highest levels. And I only want to go into a position which will be a meaningful uh, step up in my career and where I can do work that really matters. So let's make sure that we're the right fit for each other. If we're the right fit, we can figure out a way to make the numbers, the vacation time, the package work. If we're not the right fit, then we shouldn't spend time worrying about the numbers because we'll never go forward with this anyhow. And it's a good way to kick the can down the road to a later meeting. Yeah, I agree. And it's also a great way, again, to emphasize, you know, the, the value that you believe that you bring to the table for the company. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's another another opportunity to ring that bell while still not giving them the information that they're asking for. So I, I like that answer a lot, too, mm-hmm. um, quite a bit. This is another reason, by the way, to kick this can down the road. Like, you often get asked the salary question very, very early in the process. Uh, in some cases, before you've had the opportunity to demonstrate much value at all. And it's highly disadvantageous for you to just be like coming out of the blue and saying, okay, I want 150 and uh, you don't know me from Adam. So, you know, if you're in a position where you have to say a number, you want to be saying that from a position of relative strength where they know about your accomplishments, they've seen your performance in the interview, they're already thinking, yes, I definitely want to hire this person if we can come to a deal. And then when you say a number, you know, that's a number that can be worked with rather than naming a number which they might perceive as high, which would cause them to mentally check out from the conversation earlier. Or even there's high numbers and there's high numbers. I mean, someone prior to having a, you know, prior to having a good understanding of what your level of skill is, they might think that they're unwilling to pay 150. But if they were aware of how good you are, they might be totally willing to pay 150. But if they think they're unwilling to pay it, and they don't have any information to, to use a poker term, level you about uh, where you are on the uh, on the skill ladder for them. You might never get the chance to demonstrate how good you are. They will just select you out of the process early to save it for once in time. So you definitely don't want to be getting into a deep conversation about salary benefits, etc., until you're at a point in the negotiation with them where they're sure they want you if they can come to a deal. I describe that as yes if rather than no buts. 
yes, we'll hire you if we can come to a deal rather than, no, we don't want to hire you, but we might be able to hire you if you're really, really cheap. You never want to be coming in under that set of circumstances. Yeah, I totally agree. I love the idea of thinking of it as kind of kicking the can down the road as you continue to provide you know, more information to the company that you're talking to in terms of demonstrating competency and ability to them and the value that you'll bring. Obviously, the, the longer you have to do that before they make their offer, the better. And that's sort of my overarching interview strategy is that you just continue to pound them with how much value you can bring to them and how you're uniquely qualified to do the things that they need you to do which then, in their eyes, raises your value to their firm. Obviously, the longer you have to do that, then the more value you can demonstrate. And I also like that you emphasize there, again, you know, there's, there's still an honesty component here. I, I always emphasize that you should be honest. And I think it's you know, an honest thing to say, we kind of nibbled around it here, but is I don't know what a good number is because I have no idea what you, how you value my skill set and how you pay other people at your firm and what sort of value I necessarily add in a monetary sense to your firm. I just don't know. And so it's in, in a way, like you said earlier, this is a signal that I know that it would be foolish for me to guess at that value. It's not wise for me to guess and I can shoot myself in the foot. And so I'm just going to defer and allow you to make that judgment for me and tell me about what you expect the value I'll bring is. And we'll wait as long as we can so I can continue showing you how valuable I'll be as an asset to your firm if we get to that part of the process. <laughs> you can explicitly say things like, I don't know if I would use the exact words you have me at a bit of a disadvantage here, but I like the tap that Josh just took, which said that says that, look, um, uh, you've had this conversation with many of the people who currently work for your firm. You know what the numbers look like internally, what your uh, general expectations are, what your ranges are for various levels of seniority. You know what the firm's needs are, and you know what the hiring market looks like in your area. You know all this much better than I do. I'm just an engineer. I focus on doing um, very, very good work and uh, kind of let the chips fall where they may on the on the money side of things because I'm not in business. So I trust you to give me an offer which will be consistent with your standard practices and with the and with compensation in the industry. I expect you to quote a number which will be fair to both of us, and then we'll negotiate honestly about it. But I don't feel the need to dictate to you, you know, what you should be paying your employees because obviously I don't have that information in front of me. And then, of course, you are going to negotiate once you actually get to the point of talking about the offers. Let's uh, let's speed this conversation along, you know, conversation or two in the process. You've been screened. You've passed through the screen. You've had your interview. You're at yes if. Um, they've, they've said, we like you. We would like you to work at our firm. Let's talk offer. Where do we go from here? Right. So, you know, at this point, you have spent a good deal of effort throughout the interview demonstrating your value as a candidate. And so you're also waiting for them to make the first offer. So we've been talking about kicking the can down the road in terms of talking about desired salary, deferring to their expertise and their experience with evaluating you know, the monetary value that you'll bring to the company. And so you're waiting for them to make you an offer. Just before they make you that offer, I think it's very important to step back and think about what your what I call your minimum acceptable salary is. So in other words, you know, what's the line in the sand for me that I must make either directly as the offer comes across or in the course of the negotiation in order to accept this position for this firm. You can do that by evaluating your market value. There's a ton of great data out there online and estimating, you know, your value to this firm in this region with your skill set and experience, with your background. And try to determine, you know, what it is for you, taking in even subjective factors like 
Do I want to move to that location? What's the cost of living there? How much of a commute will I have? How much of a drain will this be on my personal life? All those things get wrapped up into this minimum acceptable salary number. And I think before you even hear their offer, you should have this number written down somewhere. Yes. So if it's 70000 or a hundred or 150000 you write that down and you have that line in the sand. And that sets up your negotiation to be a lot more successful. Yeah. I really like the idea of explicitly writing this down. I would literally write out on an index card and keep it in my pocket, both for the... Obviously, you're never going to show them the index card, but it's a partly it's a commitment strategy and partly the psychology of this conversation is ruinous for a lot of people, particularly a lot of people who act like engineers, right? Uh, it's a very, very high stakes conversation for you. It's high stress. In the moment, you might say yes to things that you're not truly happy with um, just to get out of this high stress situation or you find your mouth talks before you can even... Um, you can even rein it in. My sister, who literally is a recruiting manager, found herself given a number and it was out before she could even call it back. And this is like, this is her only job, right? So, you know, you want to prepare for the fact that I know I'm going to be under stress in this situation. I'm going to pre-commit by like literally writing the words, I will not say yes to any offer under X and write that on your pocket. And I want you to write the second thing right under that. No matter what their offer is, I will negotiate it upwards. And I think this is important and subtle. If your number, your line in the sand, like, I need one tech under $10,000. And they come in with, okay, we think that we could see a way to pay you $125,000. You don't say yes. <laughs> you say right. $125,000 is a very interesting number. And I think we're close. And then you negotiate upwards from 125. Do you want to riff a little bit on why this is so important? Yeah, I think you know there's there's kind of an obvious reason it's important, which which goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is you don't know the maximum number they're willing to pay. And sort of my whole negotiation strategy um, that I write about in my book and everything everywhere else that I write is that you don't know what the max they're willing to pay is, and so your task is to determine that number, to find that number, and you do that by negotiating. So first. You don't give them any anchors to use when they're setting your offer amount. Then they make you an offer, and then you negotiate above that offer. And your your whole goal is to essentially make them a little bit uncomfortable, to push them right up to the tippy top of their comfort zone so that you know that they're giving you the best possible salary that they can give. And the only way that you can do that is by negotiating. So obviously, even if your minimum acceptable is 110, they offer you 125. This goes back to why you don't guess, right? <laughs> obviously, you're you're pretty far out of line in terms of what you thought that they would pay you or what you think your value is. You've misestimated your value. Mm -hmm. So it's time to negotiate. And you're 100% right that once you get that offer, your next move is always to negotiate. Yeah. And I would encourage you to think, we've been talking about salary like it's a you know, single scalar number, but there's actually multiple components to an offer. Many of them are interesting. Typically, the salary one is going to be the number that has the most amount of leverage for you personally. And it's the easiest thing to get them to negotiate because paying money is easy and scalable. That's why we do it. But um, some other parts of the the offer are less easy to change on a per candidate basis for the firm. But you should consider that any number that they put in an offer letter, whether that's salary, whether that's number of vacation days, whether that's uh, number of shares of the company, exercise window, yada, yada. In principle, every number is negotiable. They're all variables. So... You know, you can trade off a little on one number to get you to happier on another number. And this is 
probably the first thing you should say after they say, okay, you know, we're at the absolute top of our range on salary. I can't give you a single dollar more. You should say, okay, I understand that. Let's bracket the question of salary for the moment. I like that phrasing because it doesn't say I accept, you know, the salary number, but just tabling that for a second, let's talk about number of vacation days. You are offering me 14. 14 is very generous, but, you know, I blah, blah, blah. I, I like traveling. I want to have a, a little bit of leeway. Could you see a way to offer 20? And if they say yes, then great. We just got six extra vacation days for nothing. If they say, well, you know, this is company policy. Everybody gets 14. It's like, okay, uh, well, if we don't have fl- flexibility on vacation days, where do you suggest that we have flexibility? And they might come up with something which is not too useful to you. Like, oh, we will flexibly offer you anything you want to eat from our selections of lunches available, which you say, well, that's nice to try again. <laughs> but they might come up back to something like, well, you could potentially, you know, up your equity grant. This is kind of important for many of the people here who will be working for startups and negotiating equity grants. And it is a very deep topic. Uh, we'll link you to a poster too about the specifics of this because they're kind of mind bending if you haven't done it before. The thing I would suggest for negotiating equity grants is A, make sure it's in writing in like the form of an offer letter and don't negotiate them live. You almost certainly need to have an Excel model in front of you to be able to properly value equity grants. That's something, by the way, that you can do with any components of this, like rough out the offer, then get it in writing, which they'll force you to do anyhow in the form of a formal written offer letter. And uh, say, you know, after I have your formal offer in hand, I will take a day or two to think on it and then get you my answer. And you don't need any... You don't need to give them any reason for why to, why you need to think on it, but it's almost always to your benefit to take some time, get out of this high pressure situation, and then come back with an answer that you've slept on and are happy with. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think to put a finer point on some of the things you said, I, I think that uh, for me, I always emphasize that base salary is the most important thing to me. And I, it should probably be the most important thing to you when you're negotiating starting salary. I could think of exceptions, but for the most part, I think that's a good rule of thumb. <laughs> and then you just prioritize the other things that you think might be available. So I think your tactic is really great. Starting with something that's important to you, if they shoot it down, then asking them what's available, what levers are available to pull. I think it's, it's important to start with some sort of priority in your mind so you can try to get the best thing. And my sort of general rule of thumb is if they say no or compromise on the last thing you suggested, then there's room for you to continue negotiating. So if you said, well, I'd be more comfortable at 120,000, they said deal, then you're probably done. But if you said, I'd be more comfortable at 120 and they say, well, we can go as high as 115, then just like you said, that's an opportunity for you to say, okay, well, I was hoping for 120. You said we could come up to 115. Can you do 115 in an extra week of vacation? Or can you do 115 and whatever? And then you kind of start walking down that list until you get a yes or you run out of things to ask about. And then you know that you're at 115 with the set of benefits that are available that can't be moved. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's a, a great strategy just to kind of walk down that list. So it might be worth talking about here. Um, one of the classic things in negotiation is worrying about your BATNA, your best alternative to negotiated agreement. And this is something that business folks do all the time. You know, in the event that this doesn't go through, what's the worst case scenario for us? In general... Um, you don't want your BATNA to be unemployment. <laughs> so it will make this negotiation much better, both for salary and for everything else out of this, uh, this process, if you have multiple errands in the fire. So if you're actually you know, searching for a job with multiple companies at once, and ideally you have an off- another offer in hand already, 
how do you play this differently if I have an offer in hand already? This is one thing to kind of I'm pat myself on the back a little bit here. This is one thing I really like about my strategy is that it all goes back to your minimum acceptable salary. That number will change based on objective measures like your market value as far as you can measure it and other things, but also subjective measures like is this your only opportunity or do you have other opportunities? So if you have other opportunities and you have a sense of what the value of those opportunities might be, then you might adjust your minimum to be higher. If you you know have two offers in hand, then your minimum for either will probably be a little bit higher knowing that your fallback is most likely the other opportunity. So the sort of simple method that I use is I don't suggest adjusting your minimum once you've set it. However, if you are in a situation where you're getting multiple offers, you have other opportunities that are coming and going, then you might be adjusting your minimum just based on the probability that you're going to land another gig or that you're going to have a better gig or that this opportunity that's in front of you doesn't necessarily have to be the one that you get. My general strategy is continue to monitor the minimum acceptable salary and account for the fact that you've got uh, other opportunities. There are a lot more nuances that you get into when you're mostly juggling timelines. <laughs> You'll yeah. end up, you know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting to hear on this offer and they want to know by Tuesday, what do I do? And that's, a, you know, I think a little bit different conversation than what you were asking about. But adjust mm-hmm. your minimum to account for the fact that you've got other offers and make sure that you're being uh, honest with that minimum. Should I explicitly say to my counterparty at the company, I have a competing offer here? Should I tell them what the competing offer is? Should I tell them who made the competing offer? I think that's a matter of personal taste. I'd be curious to know what you think about that. In general, I think that the less information you reveal, the better, unless you're positive that it's going to have some sort of benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that kind of back to something that we talked about earlier when we were talking about the dreaded salary question is one reason that you may not name your current salary is you're you know, trying to keep information between you and a counterparty, which would be, you know, your current employer, or in the case of another offer that's on the table, that other employer. I do think that probably your first instinct should be, I'm going to demonstrate to this firm that I'm talking to that I'm going to keep our offer between me and the firm if possible. And to demonstrate that, I'll, I'll not tell them the details of another offer. So you might run a blur filter over it and say, well, I, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you who the firm is, but I have another offer, a strong offer that I'm very interested in. And so we need to work on your offer for me to continue negotiating or something like that. Mm-hmm. I like uh, that in outlines. I wouldn't leave with the fact that I have another offer. I'd probably keep that under your vest until you get to the point where they've given you an offer which isn't competitive or you know doesn't hit, which you're not fully happy with. At that point, you say, okay, I think we're close here. It's important for me to let you know that while I would really le- love to work for your company, I'm fairly decent at what I do, and I'm obviously searching for a lot of offers in parallel. And there's another offer in the table from a peer organization that's as specific as, as I would be, you know, a peer company. Because companies like startups don't feel that they have to match offers against you know, finance firms, and finance firms don't feel that they, that they necessarily care how they compare with Google. So you just say a peer organization, and that's as specific as you have to be. A peer company has... You know, put an offer on the table, which I felt was very fair. And I don't want to have to make the decision to work for that company just based on the numbers because I would love to work for you so much. So do you have any slack on your offer? And then see what they can do. If they ask you, what is that offer? Say, (laughs) well, just like I won't be sending them a write-up of our conversation, I'm not going to tell you the specifics of the conversation I had with them, but... Trust me on this, I'm an honest professional. And if they don't believe you're an honest professional, then get out of this conversation because you definitely don't want to be working there. Uh, and this is, again, you know, demonstrating competent, confident professional. I, 
you know, you're going to want to ask me some things that I do not want to answer, and that's okay. We're going to move on from that. And if you attempt to browbeat me about that, then I'm not going to wilt like to wilt on this question because this is what I do for a living. And see, a lot of engineers will read this as intransigence. I think word I've only ever seen in print. Um, like they think, oh, you'll lose points if you don't immediately roll over. But this is the opposite of how business people think. Think that people who roll over immediately are less trustworthy in their eyes than people who don't. <laughs> so don't roll over immediately uh, in the face of opposition. Yeah, I think you're you're dead on there about the signals that you're sending. And we talked about this a little bit earlier with the dreaded salary question too. Is that it's sort of a double whammy if you disclose that information because not only have you given away you know a few of the bits of information that you had that were unique that the company doesn't have, but you've also sent a signal to them that you may not be the most savvy business person or the most savvy negotiator. You may not be someone who can be depended on to be sort of left alone to your own devices because pressure gets to you and that sort of thing. And even if it's not an explicit evaluation that they're doing of these things, it could be a subconscious thing. It could literally affect the offer they make you mm-hmm. if they just think that you're a weaker candidate because you're too easy to push around. There's a lot riding on, you know, kind of staying strong, setting boundaries and sticking to the rules that you lay out during the negotiation to signal to them that you're a serious candidate and that you understand business and you understand what you're doing and that you're not going to roll over for them. Mm-hmm. I had a, uh, an incident which put this in a sharp relief back during my consulting career. I was in a negotiation with a prospective consulting client for a deal which was in the bag. He loved me. We had worked together informally for a bunch of years. And uh, then we got to the number question and I said, my rate is X, but because I like you, I'll give you half X. And he told me years later, yeah, I almost exited the conversation at that point. And I was facepalming internally, but I'm like, of course you did. Because I'm sending a signal very strongly that either I'm lying about my rate generally being X, which I wasn't, I was being totally honest about it, or that I'm a terrible, terrible businessman to be in business with because I was just willing to give a 50%, like negotiate against myself for 50%, which is an absurd discount without even any hint of pushback from him on the number that I had said. So I'm, I'm signaling all the sorts of the wrong things during that. And we eventually got the engagement done at half of my rate and it was successful, but uh, it got the engagement off on the wrong foot and cost me a whole heck of a lot of money without meaningfully improving anything about that relationship. Um, So yeah, don't do that to yourself. Yeah. You've signaled either that you are lying about your rate or that you don't believe your own rate. Either way, it's it's not good, right? (laughs) Either way, you're sending the wrong signal to them about how how much of a professional you are and and the quality of your work. Mm -hmm. Yep. So... We've talked a little bit about how to negotiate salary before you're hired. A lot of engineers ask me, how do I negotiate a salary once I'm hired? I feel like, you know, I haven't gotten a raise in a while or market market conditions have changed or I've gotten better at my job. I've been given more responsibilities. I think I'm worth more. How do I go about getting that? Yeah, I think this is a really common concern and it's quite a bit different than what I call a starting salary negotiation when you're changing firms. When you're in the firm, things look quite a bit different in terms of, you mentioned earlier, for example, your BATNA, that you are not typically in a situation where you're going to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm leaving if I don't get this. And so it's, it's a much more collaborative conversation where I think it's even more imperative that you demonstrate value and quantify that value to your manager and to whoever else needs to approve the raise that you're seeking. So my general strategy is, first of all, you hit the nail on the head with, well, 
things have changed since, since my salary was set. So I need to estimate what my current value is to this firm. And so you do that again by doing a market value estimation, using the tools that are out there, talking to peers and colleagues, even people that work at the same firm, figure out what they're making, a little sidebar. People are uncomfortable talking about salaries. I think we all know this. A nice tactic that I like to use when you're trying to figure out what somebody makes is to ask them a hypothetical about someone just like them working in a company just like theirs. Um, <laughs> people are surprisingly willing to say, oh, well, you know, hypothetically, somebody with my skill set and experience at my firm, if they were hired tomorrow, would probably make about X. And it's usually going to turn out that X is really close to their salary. So that's a, a nice little kind of work around there to, to figure out pretty precise estimates of people's salaries without actually asking them outright what their salary is. Mm -hmm. So you aggregate this data and get a sense of, okay, well, I think my value, my market value and my value to this specific firm based on my experience here and the uh, responsibilities that I've taken on and all that good stuff is some number. And that's your target salary. I think it's good to have a target salary in mind. From a manager's perspective, if you kind of imagine what it's like to sit on the other side of the table, vague requests are very hard to satisfy and specific requests are very easy to evaluate and usually satisfy. So if you go to your manager and say, I would like a raise because I need to make my car payment. I just bought a Ferrari. Your manager, first of all, doesn't have a lot of incentive to uh, cooperate with you because he probably doesn't care that you bought a car and you buying a Ferrari doesn't add value to the firm. <laughs> However, if you go to your manager and say, I would like a raise because these conditions have changed. It's been this long since my salary was set. And I think my value is closer to this other number. Then you have a conversation that can be very productive because your manager has very specific, tangible things to evaluate and give you feedback on. Mm -hmm. So I think you should start by figuring out what your target salary is. Then it's important to catalog all the things that you mentioned earlier in terms of what are the things that are different now than they were when we set my current salary. So am I leading a team and I wasn't leading a team before? Have I learned new technology? Am I managing more projects? Am I managing a bigger portfolio? Am I doing more sophisticated reporting that demonstrates you know, what my team is up to? All these things that you could be doing. I call them your accomplishments, but you want to specifically catalog, you know, what are the things that you're doing that, that are adding additional value since your last salary was set? You also want to get social proof. I call it accolades. But, you know, what have other people said about you? This is usually somewhere in your inbox. You could search for things like thank you or awesome exclamation point and look for proof or feedback from clients and colleagues that demonstrate that you're doing a great job. You're going above and beyond. And this way, even if your manager hasn't been paying attention or hasn't had time to really think about what you're doing, you can say, well, these other people have been paying attention and they think I'm doing pretty great. Mm -hmm. So that all bundles up into a nice tidy package that you can then present to your manager saying something along the lines of, in 18 months, salary was adjusted. Uh, I've done some research. I think my value to the firm is probably closer to this other number. Here's all the stuff that I've been doing since my salary was last set to add value to the firm, to continue to take on responsibility. Here are a few things other people have said about me. Can we talk about getting a raise to X for me now. Mm -hmm. And then and then you've kind of turned it loose into the wild by proposing that to your manager. Right. I also like to have this conversation be partly retrospective and partly prospective about uh, your future value to the company. You're going to be earning the new salary over the course of weeks, months, you know, potentially a year or two in the future. And so you're not talking about your last, say, 12 months of accomplishments to talk about what got done in the last 12 months and you're going to compensate me in the future for what I did in the last 12 months. Those salary cut checks have been cut. You're even with regards to the last 12 months. What you want to say is the last 12 months proves that I'm on a growth trajectory where I will be producing even more value in the future. And ideally, the amount of value that I'm producing is already accelerating. 
so given that I'm going to go on to do great things in the next 12 months, let's talk about how to properly compensate me in the moment for those great things that will be happening. This is one reason, by the way, where it's good to time this conversation uh, if you can after you've uh, delivered a major project, for example. Say, you know, we got this done, but I'm not going to rest on my laurels. My next big thing that I want to deliver for the company is X, Y, or Z. And while I'm delivering that great value, which is demonstrated by the great value that we're, you know, in the nice warm afterglow of at the moment, let's talk about um, making the same, you know, mutually rewarding outcome. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's a great tactic, too, is, is to also essentially demonstrate to your manager that you're going to continue adding value and probably going to continue acquiring new skills and taking on more responsibility at about the same rate you have for the past 12 months. And so this is, you know, an investment on both of your parts. I think that's a, a great tactic. Mm-hmm. I think one other thing you can do to maximize your chances of getting that raise through, or I, I like to actually put that request in writing. So everything that you said verbally to your manager, summarize it in a nice, tidy email and send it over after you've had a verbal conversation in a one-on-one or a face-to-face meeting. The reason for that is a lot of times, even if your manager agrees with you, the next step will be that they'll have to go to their manager or to somebody else and start the approval process for a raise because typically you're not doing this to get a 1% raise. You're doing this to get an extraordinary raise. And so it usually will require an approval process that could be kind of grueling. It could be four, five, six people deep. Um, And so giving them your written case you know, summarizing all that effort that you put into building your case in an email gives your manager something that they can circulate so that now everybody who hears about the raise request that you've made also gets to see that accompanied by your case in writing, which obviously you're going to do a better job of making your case than anybody else. Um, so that's one more kind of layer to the to the process that I like to emphasize. Right. Plus, this makes it easier for your manager um, rather than forcing them to make the case and giving them additional work, which should, will be lower priority for them than the work they actually get scored on. <laughs> it you know wraps it up nicely in a bow for them. And again, giving people the image of you as a competent professional, it's easy for just talk with your manager to, to be read as just talk. Or maybe they don't read it that way, but they treat it kind of just talk. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, Josh was grousing a little bit about his salary, but everybody grouses about their salary occasionally. But professionals, when they want something done, they put it in writing. And that's, you know, a core professional skill. So when you're putting, when you put something in writing in a well written formal request, you're saying, this is a request. Like you can say no to it. You can say yes to it. But because we're professionals, when I put a formal request in writing, you are expected to act upon it rather than just not acting for the next two weeks and seeing what happens. And you can follow up in a week later. And again, follow up verbally first, but then with a with email. Uh, boss, I was just inquiring on the status of my uh, raise request. Is there any additional information that uh, you need to help make the determination of uh, to help make the determination to grant my request? And I would approach it from the perspective of. Like, you're not asking for the moon and stars here. You've earned this. It's very obvious that uh, it's in the company's mutual interest to keep you happy. You've calculated a number that will make you happy and uh, enter the negotiation from the, from the perspective of, I assume the company is going to say yes to this. If I uh, figure out the right words to say for you, tell me what the right words are. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think everything you said there is spot on. You want to make your best case, but also present a professional front. You want to, you have to follow up. I think following up is, is something important that is overlooked, which is you don't verbally request and then send an email and then just forget about it and hope the raise happens. You're going to, you're probably going to need to ask again in your next one on one. You're probably going to need to follow up on that email a week or two later. You might have to do that several times. 
because, as you mentioned, Patrick, there are specific job responsibilities that your manager has that are probably more important to the company and to him than your race. And so you got to stay on the radar and kind of keep on it and keep demonstrating that you're engaged and that you uh, would like a response. So uh, the potentially uncomfortable questions come up, but what if you've, te- if you've topped out at a firm, you're either at the top of the ranges, uh, the firm might be uh, not be keeping, pay- keeping pace with salaries in the industry, perhaps they're at the limit of their actual ability to pay with their business model when compared to, say, the, the Googles of the world that are spending money every day. When do we make the decision that we need to have other offers on the table? Do we communicate that internally? And how do we think about, you know, whether we want to jump? It's a great question. And it's something that, you know, even in my book, it's sort of the unhappy coda to the, to the raise and promotion process, right? Like I said, this, it's not the same as a salary negotiation where you're evaluating your BATNA and you're just going to walk away, but you may actually have to sort of walk away, even if it's delayed. If they say, we're not able to accommodate your raise request, then I think the first thing you want to do is figure out why. You mentioned the term topped out. I actually take that term a couple of ways. The, the first way is the way that I think you intended it, which is, you know, the firm simply cannot afford to pay you more money for the role that you're in for whatever reason. It may be that they don't have, they're not flush with cash. Maybe they're stretched for whatever reason. The financials aren't great. Maybe the role that you're in is a valuable role elsewhere, but maybe not for your particular firm to the level of value that you've estimated. I call that being other valued as opposed to over or undervalued. But it's also possible that you've topped out in terms of the salary available to you in your current position. So you may actually be having the wrong conversation. You may have asked for a raise, and it turns out that giving you a raise would bump you into the top of the pay range available for the job that you're in. And so you, in fact, may be better off than trying to discern from your manager whether your raise is not the right request, but you need a promotion, Mm -hmm. which will often come with a raise. So that's the first thing to determine is why am I not able to get this raise? Is it because the firm cannot afford to give me a raise or is it because my salary is more or less maxed out in my my current pay range? So thinking about it from the firm's perspective, the way that they, the reason they have salary ranges for particular positions is they're not just buying your time. They're buying, you know, 30 units, which the firm considers more or less isomorphic to you at the moment in the expectation of having these conversations hundreds of times with people who are in a position similar to you. So if having a conversation with you requires them adjusting their salary band, they get tremendous leverage with regards to that in a bad way. Like they might think, oh man, this is committing us not to giving this particular person $10,000 extra this one time but rather paying 10,000 times the number of people we have in this position times, you know, the number of total number of employee years we expect to pay for this position from now to infinity. So that's a tremendous amount of disincentive for them to bump up their ranges just to make you happy where it might be, you know, if quote unquote, all you're talking about is just getting a promotion. Well, Oh, you know, you mean we don't have to pay more for every other software engineer two for forever? We just have to put one person into the software engineer three bucket? Easy to do. Exactly. It's a much easier transaction often. Sometimes the benefit of that promotion in that case is that you'll also get a raise kind of built in. Sometimes it's a sort of lockstep raise and sometimes you'll also get to negotiate for that raise in the same way that you did before. But it could also open up quite a bit more room for you next time you pursue a raise without going into the kind of minutia of uh, pay grades or salary grades, you know, moving up into a new pay grade often means that your ceiling has just also moved up in terms of available salary. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's a move that you 
want to pursue, and usually your manager will be able to tell you, sometimes they'll, they'll think they have told you this, and you might need to ask for clarification, but it is important to know, you know, were you unable to give me a raise because the firm cannot afford to pay me more or because I'm in the, the wrong job? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you have, you know, a, a, a much better picture of what your next step should be. Or also an important thing, and if you don't have to say it in as many words, but they, it is possible that they might decline a raise because they do not have the same view of your accomplishments that you have of your accomplishments. It happens all the time. And then, you know, there's a variety of actions forward that you take if you get that signal, either doing the same amount of work, but making sure that that value is surfaced better within the company. Or, you know, if you're doing great work and you're in a position where great work is not being rewarded, then that should be a big flaming signal that you should get into a position where great work is rewarded. Uh, I think... This is partly projection because I spent six years in, in uh, a variety of traditionally managed Japanese organizations, which are not set up to reward great performance, to put it mildly. Don't work for people who don't appreciate the, what you bring to the table. That's, that is a trap to get into, and it is highly unlikely that you will successfully change the company culture to suddenly start rewarding performance. Rather, get yourself to a position and to a company that that feels like um, great work is something that's worth paying for. Yeah, and you, you just sort of went over it. You, you used the culture word, right? And so you, you end up uh, kind of quickly in this sort of, I call it a squishy area, where it really depends on who your manager is and what the company culture is. Some managers are very open. So you'll go to them and say, I like a raise to this number. Here are the reasons that I think I deserve this raise. And they'll say, I understand that you feel that way. However, here are the things that I'm seeing from my perspective, here are the KPIs that I'm measuring, the goals that I had for you, and here's why you've fallen short so far and you haven't earned the raise that you've asked for. That's a good manager. Some, mm-hmm. and, and, well, in, in a better manager is, and here is, here's a plan that you and I can work out together to uh, set a target time frame and responsibility bar that you need to achieve in order to get the raise that you've asked for. So that's on the table. It's not on the table right now, but here's what you need to accomplish and here's about how long I think that it, it will take us to get there to get you that raise. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the coin is the sort of manager who just won't engage. They're too busy doing other things or they don't want to ruffle feathers. A lot of managers simply don't want to stick their neck out for people. And so kind of detecting that can be frustrating, but is also an important signal, like you said, to, to understand that, well, it doesn't seem to matter what I do, how much value that I think I'm bringing or I am bringing. It can't be rewarded at this firm for whatever reason, and I might need to look for alternatives. Mm-hmm. If you hammer out a plan with your uh, manager, again, be the competent, confident professional and follow up on that conversation via email. Hey, Bob, thanks for having the conversation with me earlier today. I understand that you feel now is not uh, the right time to grant my formal request for a raise, but I like the plan that we discussed where we have committed to revisiting this question in six months contingent on me achieving the KPIs X, Y, and Z, that we will reopen this discussion with an eye towards granting me the raise of Y. Put it on paper or, you know, email, whichever, but even just announcing a writing, like making sure we've captured the, the outline of the agreement. Bob might not be with the firm in six months and you don't want to be starting this conversation entirely de, de novo with the person who replaces Bob. And uh, also, you know, it is highly likely that Bob considers your salary less salient to him than, say, Bob's salary or anything else that Bob is working about. So Bob might have totally forgotten this conversation in six months. So be able to have something to point to him like, hey, you know, remember that conversation we had last July, half a lifetime ago? Well, you know, I kept up by end of the bargain. 
And so, you know, with probability approaching the sun rising tomorrow, because you are a competent professional yourself, you're going to keep up your end of the bargain. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's something that, you know, you you would want to bring it up. Maybe not every one-on-one. So if you meet you, with your manager once a week for a one-on-one, you might want to bring it up once every, you know, three or four weeks. You just say, hey, by the way, I'm still working on this plan that we put together. As far as I can tell, I'm on track. What do you think? Here's what I've accomplished since we set the goals and, and that kind of thing. And just kind of keep it a, a front of mind thing for you <laughs> because now you've actually got a concrete set of things that you can do to demonstrate that you're ready for that race, but also for your manager so that there are no surprises uh, when you kind of show up out of the blue and say, here's here's all the stuff I did. I'm ready for my race. Right. Uh, it's easier to kind of take it incrementally. And, you know, when you deliver on a key project over the interval or when you hit one of your KPIs in the, the email that you send out to uh, uh, grabbing credit for it, remember to, to forward that email on to your manager with like a quick note, like, hey, Bob, you know, first one out three, knocked it out of the park, working on, uh, still working on Y and Z. I'll send you an update when it's ready. Hey, Bob, X and Y are down, just Z left to go. No surprises. And I think that's a pretty good place to leave us off uh, for this conversation unless you you have anything else you want to add. I feel good about it. I think we covered a lot of ground. I like that we got into uh, raises at the end, so I feel like I feel like we hit a lot of the highlights and gave a pretty good overview of sort of the before you're at a firm to when you're there and then to what you can do to continue, you know, pursuing salary increases as you go. So I think I think it was good. Thanks very much for taking the time to chat with me today, Josh. If any of you have questions on this or any other topic, my inbox is always open. I'm Patrick at Calzumius.com, K-A-L-Z-U-M-U-S.com. Uh, Josh, if folks want to reach you, what's the best way to do that? easiest and fastest way to get in touch with me is probably just to reach out on Twitter. I'm at Josh Doody, D-O-O-D-Y on Twitter. You can find my blog and other things I've written at joshdoody.com. And I've also set up a special offer for Calzumius podcast listeners today over at fearlesssalarynegotiation.com slash Calzumius. And throughout the podcast, Patrick, you and I talked about estimating your market value and then leveraging that market value to request a, a raise later on in the podcast. And so I've got a great offer with a couple of guides on how to estimate your market value, how to request that raise, and even an email template that you can send to your manager with your written request after you've made it. So that's fearlesssalarynegotiation.com slash Calzumius, and that's a free offer that you can go download. All right. Well, thanks very much for taking the time to chat with me uh, today, Josh. Um, folks, I really recommend this book. I've uh, read it cover to cover. It's uh, well, it's exactly what it says on the tin, right? It's a you know full book devoted to this question, which I think is really, really worth your time, considering the amount of leverage you'll get out of the salary negotiation question. So I uh, would encourage you to read that in whatever form and uh, definitely subscribe to Josh, Josh's list. He's got uh, great stuff coming about this all the time. Thanks so much for uh, talking with us today. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode.